So today is Trinity Sunday, and perhaps there's no other doctrine where Christians are attacked more than on the, the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, in fact, many point to, this is many cults, point to the doctrine of the Trinity as the Achilles heel in, in Christianity. How could it possibly be the faith that Jesus passed on to his disciples? So the, the Christianity that we practice today isn't like that because we've adopted this uh, horrific doctrine called the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's very interesting because, you know, when you read the Quran, for instance, in, in Islam, um, the centerpiece, uh, in fact, the whole thing of, of, of Islam is based on the belief in one absolute God who is singular and doesn't generate offspring. And the thought that God would have a son is, is considered disgusting and, and blasphemous to, to, uh, to those that practice Islam. Now, each year, we set a Sunday aside as Christians, and you'll see this really throughout the world, uh, where we particularly remember that, that God exists eternally as a trinity of three persons. Um, so it's a, it's a very important doctrine for us to understand as Christians. We believe in one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to do today to just help you get your, get your mind around this, because, you know, the, the Trinity is not easy. You know, it's just, it's just not an easy doctrine. It's not intuitive. And I think a lot of Christians really struggle with, well, what is the Trinity? And, and why is the Trinity so important? We're actually going to take some time just to answer questions. Um, five questions that, that people commonly ask about the Trinity uh, to try to clarify this. And I hope that in the end of this that you'll feel more comfortable with uh, talking to your Mormon and Jehovah Witness friends and, and other friends about why we believe in the Trinity and why the Trinity is, is so important. So here we go. And uh, hopefully this will answer your questions. Question number one. If Jesus is God... Does that mean that he is the father? Now, about a year ago, I was sitting in the living room of a man who attended in church in Redlands called the Church of the Living God. Um, this is a church on 4th Street and Clark, and it's sort of this red building, and it has actually flags from all over the, uh, the world. You may, some of you may be aware of that. They call themselves the Restoration of the Early Church. And so in the, if you read their website, it really sounds wonderful. Well, here is a church that's determined to, to go back to the way things were in the, in the early church. But as I sat down with them, it became apparent that they were part of the Jesus-only movement, sometimes called Oneness Pentecostalism. Have any of you heard of that before? So, um, so here's what it is. Oneness theology um, recognizes there's only one God and that there are not a triune of persons, like there's not the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They see Jesus as the, as the one true God. So Jesus is the one true God. And sometimes Jesus manifests himself as the Father. Sometimes Jesus manifests himself as the Son. Sometimes Jesus manifests himself as the Holy Spirit. The core doctrine of Jesus only is that Jesus is the Father. Jesus is the Son. Jesus is the Holy Spirit. So there's one God who reveals himself in different modes. That's the idea of it. 
And you sometimes hear Christians actually doing this as well. So you might be at an event or, and you might hear somebody praying and they'll go, Father, we thank you for dying on the cross for us. That's modalism. Why? Because, did I say, sorry, did I say, did I say Jesus? I meant Father. Did I say Father? Okay, good, good, good. Thank you. I want to make sure. Good, I got the wrong right. Good. What's wrong with that? The Father didn't die on the cross for us, right? The Son did. Jesus sent his Son to die for us on the cross. But, but the Father didn't die on the cross for us. But, so we have to be careful there because that's, that's modalism. Now, modalism was condemned as heretical in the early church. In fact, as early as the second century, it was condemned. Um, they, they held that, no, the, the God is not one singular God who acts at, in different forms in different times. They argued, in fact, from Scripture because they look at Scripture and they say, it can't possibly be true because there are instances where all three persons of the Trinity will appear simultaneously. So how could that be the same person just in different modes? And one of the most famous of those passages was one I mentioned last week. And this is when Jesus in Matthew 3 was baptized. And you remember Jesus comes and he, and he goes to uh, John the Baptist and he's baptized. And then the Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him in the form of the dove. So that's the second person of the Trinity. And then God the Father speaks. And he says, uh, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So how could one person be doing this? No, you've got three distinct persons all acting simultaneously at that point. Or, you remember when Jesus gathered his disciples in, uh, in Galilee, remember he says, at the very end he says, now go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why would you need to be baptizing them in three different names if they're all the same person, right? So, you, so modalism doesn't make sense. Now, the word... Trinity is not found in Scripture. So you're not going to find a Scripture and says, you know, we believe in a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That doesn't exist. And yet beginning in Genesis chapter 1, we begin to see clear evidence of the triune nature of God. One God in three distinct persons. Okay, question two. How can Jesus be God if he says that he is God's son? Now, the early church faced many, many heresies. Uh, in fact, from the very beginning of the church, in fact, if you, you know, look at the letters of Paul's, you, you see evidence of, of, of people that were creating divisions within the church. And one of these early heresies was Arianism. Now, Arianism is the belief that the Son of God was created by the Father, and therefore he was not co-eternal or of the same substance as the Father. Another one of these heresies is adoptionism. And that's the belief that God the Father adopted the man Jesus at his baptism to be his son. So that's a second heresy. The New Testament, however, reveals that Jesus is not created. Jesus is not just a man that was, was chosen, but that Jesus is divine. He is God. You remember the time when... Uh, when Thomas had an opportunity to touch the, the wounds of Jesus. Remember the, the wounds of Jesus. 
And then John chapter 20, verse 28, he said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't correct him. You know, he's acknowledging him as God and Jesus never corrects him. Now, another place that we find the divinity of Jesus is in Revelation. So in Revelation chapter 4, you have this incredible picture of, of all of heaven. And, and the Father is sitting on his throne in glory. And the whole heavenly host are just prostrating themselves, worshiping him. And then the very next chapter, chapter 5, you have the Lamb of God, Jesus, who comes. And all the heavenly host bows down and worship him. There's no distinction in the worship between the Father and the Son. They're both viewed as divine by the heavenly host. One God um, who, are, who is worshipped. So Jesus is clearly God. But what does it mean that he's God's son? Now, it doesn't mean that God birthed his son as, as Zeus birthed Apollo in Greek mythology. You know, sometimes when you look at the, the gods in Greek mythology, they look more like humans than they look like, well, than they look like the God of, of our scriptures. It's something very different. According to John chapter 1, the eternal word was with God from the very beginning. In fact, it's impossible to imagine God apart from the eternal God, their eternal word. They're so connected, the word and God. John says that this eternal word of God, which is so connected to the Father, but the word became incarnate. So in John 1.14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The son did not become the son of the father when he became a human being. So it wasn't at that point that he was the son. He's always been the son. So from eternity, that was the relationship between the Father and the Son. They shared the, divine, the same divine substance and nature. The early church believed in the, in the doctrine of eternal generation of the Son of God, which describes the unique characteristic of the Son in relationship to the Father. Since, the God, since God is eternal, His Word is eternal, and the relationship between the Father and the Son is eternal as well. It's an eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. Question three. Isn't the Holy Spirit more of a force than a person? Now, Jehovah Witnesses believe that the Holy Spirit is, a, uh, is an impersonal force of the Godhead, uh, not a distinct person. And I bet many, maybe some of you believe that the Holy Spirit is a force. Uh, I know some, I've heard some professing Christians do that. And you sometimes notice it because of the pronoun they use. They'll say it when they refer to the Holy Spirit rather than, rather than he when they refer to the Holy Spirit. Christians believe that the Holy Spirit is not a force, but a person. In Scripture, the Holy Spirit displays the three primary attributes necessary for a person. The Holy Spirit has a mind. So in Romans 8.27, Paul writes, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit also has emotions. So in Ephesians 4.30, Paul warns the church, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, 
by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then finally, the Holy Spirit has a will. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, Paul writes, And these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And in fact, throughout Scripture, you see things attributed to the Spirit that wouldn't be attributed to the force. You know, the Spirit does things as a person would do. And so the Spirit teaches, the Spirit testifies, the Spirit commissions, the Spirit commands, and the Spirit intercedes. A force doesn't do these things, only a person does these things. Question four, how can these three be one God? So Christians believe in one God. So we, we read in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet, as we've seen, there are three distinct persons. How can, how can it be both? How can it be both? You know, Mormons believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each distinct gods. So the Father actually has a body in Mormonism, just like you, know, you and I have a body. The Son has a body as well, as we know that as well. And then the Holy Spirit doesn't have a body, but is called like a divine personage within, within Mormonism. And so Mormonism are, are tritheists, so they believe in three distinct gods. But unlike Mormons, Christians believe in the Trinity, which consists of one God who exists in community as, uh, as, as one God. So in John, uh, one of the ways I think that for us to grasp this is to kind of look at the relationship between Jesus and the Father. So how, did they, how, how does that actually work out, you know, where they're one and yet, you know, they're distinct persons? So if you look at John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Now what you see here is a unity of will, a unity of character, a unity of being between the Father and the Son. And yet they are distinct persons. I mean, Jesus could have rebelled against the Father. I mean, we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane during his excruciating prayers there. You know, take this cup from me. And yet there's a, there's a unity of will, there's a oneness. You see distinct persons, and yet they're one. One of the clearest ways to see the unity of, of, of indistinction is within creation. So in Genesis 1, we see, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth. And then in Colossians 1, 15 and 16, we have this beautiful passage describing the role of the Son, the eternal word, in creation. And it says this. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, and that's the Son, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then we see in Psalm 104.30 that created things come to life through the Spirit. That the Spirit is the one that gives life to these created things. And so together, in communion, 
One God in three persons created the world. The Son is not divided from the Father by being the Son. The Son is as near to the Father as the Father is to himself. There is distinctions between the persons, and yet they aren't separated from each other. We see this when, when Philip asks John, uh, asks Jesus. Remember he said, Lord, show me the Father, and it is enough? And then Jesus says this in John 14, 9. He says, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Okay. Now, at this point, you may be exhausted and trying to get your mind wrapped around the, the mystery of the Trinity. And part of this will always be the Trinity. It will always be a mystery. So why, question five is, why does the Trinity matter? Why is so much at stake when we talk about the Trinity um, you know, versus these other forms that we've talked? Because in understanding the way God exists, we understand how God desires us to live how he desires us to live here on this earth and how God desires us to live in eternity. God eternally exists in a community of love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this community of love. They are essentially united as one, even though they are distinct persons. The unity of persons uh, of the Godhead becomes then the model for, for how God has created his people to dwell, to, to live in relationship to one another and with God. With the triune understanding of God, we begin to grasp what Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, verses 20 and 23. And Jesus said this, he said, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will live with him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. You see, as we look at the Trinity, we see the longing of God's heart for us. You know, God doesn't long for this individual, this between me and God. Oh, yes, I have this relationship with God. That's not what he desires. That's not the desires of my, oh, this me and God thing. We are just, you know, we're so tight. That's not what he desires. He desires for there to be a community of relationship between me and him and we so that we're all together in one. And so that's why so much time the scriptures talked about how we treat one another because how we treat one another shows how much we love God. It's connected. Being a part of a community, being a part of the church is not optional. It is part of our life of faith. It is, it is critical because it demonstrates what we truly believe about God. To be a people who live in communion with God and with one another who are joined together in love. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another because you're different persons, and yet you're one in the Lord. God exists eternally in a community among different persons. 
that's what the Trinity is all about. And in understanding the Trinity, we understand how we're called to live. A community of one, of different persons, and yet we're one in the Lord.